Hi, this is Rachel. Hey, this is Spencer. And this is Neon Boots, the 90s country music podcast. And today we have with us Libby Rodenbow from Mipso. Hi, Libby. Hello. Thanks for being here. It is my pleasure. Also left out from Hard Tuck also. Since yeah, Hard Tuck I is usually a, lead with that. Well, it's a big part of this, <laughs> this podcast, podcast. So yeah. thanks to... It's the reason we exist. How many members of Hard Tuck have... Everybody but freaking Kate. No, that's not true. But yeah, she's she has not, but there's other Wilson hasn't been on. You know, Kate is probably like the number in the top five socialites of the triangle. She's so a busy lady. Yeah. yeah. She's hard We've to, she's hard to, to down. Pin some down for twenty twenty one. Yeah. I I'd, I'd shoot for like twenty twenty three. Okay. Yeah. That might be that's more point. realistic. Yeah. So yeah, I think you are one of the few bands now, Mipso as like a band that we've had multiple people on from so that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. cool and we talked about the same artist on the one with joe i realized this morning that we talked about i don't know if we should reveal yet the song choice well if they've listened to all of the episodes as they should because done their homework done their homework then they would know <laughs> that we're going to talk about keith whitley but we can save that <laughs> we can talk about the thing you just mentioned. I know. We're going to wait. First, we want to hear about Libby's experience and take on 90s country music. Okay. Well, I'm about the same age as Joseph, which means I really didn't experience the 90s as anything but like a wide-eyed little child. Mm-hmm. So I think I probably heard 90s country like in the background of the car stereo when it was happening, but probably most of my relationship to it would be in retrospect. I definitely remember like early 2000s country. Like I listened to a lot of um, Tim McGraw Mm -hmm. and Dixie Chicks. Mm -hmm. And Dixie Chicks obviously was the inspiration for Hard Talk to begin with. So that was like, we're all about the same age. And that was like the love that united us. But I have kind of, I think kind of like in the music world generally, people, I think the 90s is like an iffy time in almost every genre. Mm -hmm. People are like, (laughs) I don't know if I fuck with that, you know? Like, I think it's because... It's embarrassing. It's it's <laughs> potentially embarrassing to identify with like that style of recording right. and writing. Now what I really appreciate about 90s country and maybe about other genres of music in the 90s too is that there's a really kind of like sweet innocence mm-hmm. to it almost mm-hmm. when compared to I don't know the 70s are very like cool and the 80s it's very extravagant and the 90s it's like I guess there was like a literary movement called new sincerity in the 90s I think that's right with like David Foster Wallace and all these people and I think that there's a little of that in the music in the world music. too hmm. where people are just like bearing their souls and this song choice is, is definitely an example of that I don't know. Do you want to get into the song yet, or do you want to talk about it? Well, I thought you were talking about, like, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC being examples of sincere, <laughs> you know... Well, that's true, ...bearing their too. souls. Like, that's true, I, too. It's a way for you to connect the dots there, but it's fine. My first... Yeah, my first concert was Aaron Carter and A-Teens. <laughs> wow. Or, no, actually, my first concert was Backstreet Boys, and then I followed that up with Aaron with Carter Aaron and A-Teens. Yeah. Sense. Just run that high. And I really... That Backstreet Boys concert made quite an impact on me because I'd never been to even like a small concert and mm-hmm. this was like an arena show. Yeah. And that was my first time realizing that like celebrities were real people. And when I saw them 
they came out riding on surfboards, like they were suspended on wires and they were riding surfboards like through the crowd to the stage. Wow. <laughs> and I remember seeing them and I was like eight or nine and I really like got my heart caught in my chest mm. because I was like, it was so hard to believe that they were real. Like real. Not just people that you've seen on TV, right. on MTV and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we laugh about the idea that they were sincere because obviously that's like the most engineered, mm-hmm. like business run kind of robotic right. version of music that could be made. But to my nine-year-old self, it was absolutely sincere. Absolutely. And I sincerely loved it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did you see them when they played PNC this year? No. Yeah, I might have been on tour. I don't know. No, but. I didn't see them. Did you? <laughs> no, I did not. Okay. I would like. <laughs> I would if, go if somebody, if somebody gave me a free yeah, ticket. Yeah, someone gave me a free ticket. I would go just to see them riding on surfboards. Yeah, I'd be cool. really curious if they they're still that. like dancing around or. I think they are. Yeah. Um, I saw. I they had friends to. that went to the show and okay. saw like you know Instagram stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. They didn't seem quite as spry as they maybe were whenever you saw them. Naturally. On the I don't think that surfboards were involved at PNC. But it's too bad. They definitely pulled out some of the classic dance moves from their music videos mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I mean they don't have much else to offer <laughs> besides the dance yeah, moves. Yeah. <laughs> they are talented singers though. So like yeah, I think it's true. And I think if you think about the majority of the people that were there are all older folks in late 20s, 30s, maybe even early 40s. So I think that most of us are okay with, you know, just sitting down <laughs> yeah. and listening to someone <laughs> yeah. singing. Definitely. <laughs> I remember at the concert when I was nine, they had a song called Mama, I Love You, if you remember that one. And they took up some like little girls who were like near the front mm-hmm. of the stage and walked around the stage holding their hands saying mama i love you i get but it was like those are the little girls those are they should have taken their moms up on yeah, yeah that, that seems really weird <laughs> like already seems weird as like guys that were older than most of their fans i'm sure and then <laughs> yeah. it's like now we're gonna bring them up on stage and hold their hands and like uh, yeah, the mama, like, ugh, weird. It would have been better if their moms had gotten up there with yeah, them. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> cool. Well, maybe for the next reunion tour. Yeah, they'll think about they that. that one. Yeah. yeah. If they listen, I assume they listen to this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. AJ's a huge fan. Yeah, I, it would be AJ. He's got that, uh, that like, whiskey Americana look mm-hmm. we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to transition to t- talking about the song that we um, will discuss Keith today. Whitley liked alcohol. Oh, that's sure. <laughs> Great transition, Spitzer. I didn't. That feels say like almost a like a too thing. soon type thing. It was thing. just I don't a, know. It was a factual statement. I didn't say I was glad. It just—it's true. That bears mentioning. If yeah. we're going to go in the, in the direction of Keith Whitley. Very true. <laughs> so, statement about his life. I don't know what else. Tell us about the song that you chose and why you picked this one. Okay, the song I chose is "I'm Over You." And the first time I heard it was actually from a folk Americana band that Mipso was playing with called Ten String Symphony, Mm -hmm. which is a band of two five-string fiddle players. Oh. Which is very cool. I like that, yeah. And they were singing it, and we ended up, like, all playing it together for a couple of encores when we were on tour with them because it was such a good group song. Mm -hmm. And I love... I always make note of 
those songs that are like easy for everybody to pick up like this is a three chord song it's a great like classic country song in that way but it also has like a little like hint of something special that Mm -hmm. puts it above the other songs Mm -hmm. of its ilk which i guess is kind of like what that intangible thing that makes all great country songs because in form and like from some sort of like scientific perspective of song analysis there are just thousands of identical country songs Mm -hmm. but for some reason certain ones of them stand stand out out. yeah and this one did even before i'd heard the actual recorded version of it but especially once i heard the recording i was like that's a special song and i also am a huge fan of songs of the category that's like don't worry about me, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And then, like, parentheses, I'm obviously not, not fine. fine. <laughs> like, there's a great George Street song called Oceanfront Property. Yes. Do you know that one? That yes. I feel like is a, a similar vibe. And then there's a pop song from uh, maybe the 80s called um, Missing You by John mm-hmm. Waite. Okay. It's like, I ain't missing you. At all, all. yes, yes. <laughs> same, same idea. And I love all this. I one day I'm just gonna like make a covers album that's all songs like that. That's awesome. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Well, yeah. Was... So this song barely qualifies as a '90s song. I think we should point out. Uh, oh, I Jan- didn't even look that up. January 1990, it just got in mm. under the this... wire. It was on that posthumous album. Oh, because I would have said something if it. Yeah, Rachel would have shot it down. Yeah, sorry. I think I point out pretty early on. This one's going to be one of those ones that would be contentious, but mm-hmm. January 90 so works. So was... did did the other what which song did uh, Joseph do? Uh, Charlotte's North Charlotte's North Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. That's not surprising. Yeah. So that was also posthumous, I guess. It was part of a compilation album that came out. Oh, it was on that tribute album that came out like 94 or Mm -hmm. something where there were a couple Keith Willie songs that like weren't out yet. Right. And on that one, there's a cover of this by Tracy Lawrence, Mm -hmm. which sounds pretty similar. I feel like they almost use the same like backing tracks for it and just like put his vocal on over. Yeah. So it's really similar. Yeah. I mean, something about his Keith Willie's delivery on this, like the cover versions I've heard studio wise are like always really similar in instrumentation stuff mm-hmm. but they just don't do it for me in the same way and i feel like part of it's like you know he started out playing bluegrass stuff with ricky skaggs and jd crow and like if you want to be a good bluegrass singer you have to sing with a lot of emotion mm-hmm. and convey that i mean going to abbey may the past several years in raleigh i know there's a lot of bluegrass singers that don't do that and are not very good at that. Yeah. But he definitely has that. And so I think that adds more like depth to his performance compared to some of the others that are a little bit more, um, I don't know, the vocals just seem more straightforward. Right. I, don't have a, I don't have a better way of putting it. I mean, there's that cover by Chris Young, some 2000s he, did pop he, country he guy. He won some like American Idol type thing, didn't he? Oh, I have no idea. Oh, really? I think so. It's, again, like we talked about, one of the Chris's was, or Brett's that get mixed up yeah. in modern he country. Was declared, <laughs> he was declared the winner of season four of the television program Nashville Star. Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. competition on the USA Network. I mean, he looks like every other white man oh, singing yeah. country music yeah. nowadays. He looks very angry to be interviewed he in does. this picture on Wikipedia. He's like, he's like, I fell backwards he's into like, fame. I will not show you my lips. <laughs> you don't deserve it. Wow, and he is a member of the Grand Ole Opry, and I would never have, I would have lost money on that bit. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, he did have this top five hit all in all. Yeah, I feel like I've probably heard that like at a baseball game, which 
I but did not look at his Wikipedia till now, but some of these song titles, Getting You Home, the Black Dress song, <laughs> seem <laughs> iffy. I'm curious yep, about what... Yep, I agree. <laughs> Wait, is the All Naw song an original, or is it a cover of the Nappy Roots? <laughs> I hope it's a cover oh, of the Nappy Roots. Oh, that would be really I perfect. highly doubt it. <laughs> Whenever we pause this to listen to Keith Whaley, we're probably actually going to listen to... We're actually going to listen to All Naw. Yeah, or Getting You Home. I have to say that this line from the Wikipedia page on Getting You Home, the Black Dress song, is clearly written by a fan. It says, the song garnered positive reviews from critics who praised the suggestive lyrics for sounding sexy and for being a great non-sellout single. <laughs> what does that even mean? I, I love the suggestive lyrics for sounding sexy. It's like he wasn't doing those non-sexy suggestive lyrics. Suggestive lyrics. lyrics. Like, he went for the sexy shit with his suggestive lyrics. Yeah, uh, Spencer and I have learned the ridiculousness of Wikipedia articles through mm-hmm. this podcast mm-hmm. since since Wiki is our primary source of information. But I'm going to start writing a bunch for Mipsa songs. Is that cool with you? Yeah, I'm just going to come with my <laughs> own interpretation for, for its non-suggestive <laughs> lyrics that were not at all sexy. That were not sexy whatsoever. <laughs> the best part are the descriptions of what the song is about. Yeah. It's like a live bell line retelling of so, and, and the song is like absolutely straightforward because it's a country song. It, it is. It just tells you exactly what it's about. And then somebody has to paraphrase mm-hmm. and it's like doing a spark notes for like a children's book. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's such a good comparison. <laughs> <laughs> and then so the mouse gave him a cookie. See, that's what started the problem. <laughs> or you gave the mouse a cookie. Shit, I did backwards. Well, it's, it's Wikipedia style. There's going yeah. to be problems in it. You can't, oh, wow. can't trust all the info. Well, what you said about the Keith Whitley's bluegrass background, I, I had intended to say something about that, too, because I think that that fits really well with the 90s vibe mm-hmm. of... Well, I guess that's like, we would say late 80s, early yeah. 90s vibe of country song. Because bluegrass is such a campy genre that you have to it it takes a lot to believe it sometimes mm-hmm. and you have to be you have to be both campy like you have to be kind of flamboyant and you know have a sort of crazy voice a lot of times mm-hmm. in bluegrass to to be a well-known singer in bluegrass but then you also have to sell it right and that's a really tough combo and I guess a lot of like non-lovers of bluegrass would say they don't sell it, but right. to me, he, he's definitely selling it. Well, there are the cheesy ones that I feel like get by in bluegrass. I don't know why, because they're just totally campy and they're not selling it. Yeah. Like, there was one that won, um, I thought it won one of the songs of the year this year, but the band, at least Joe Mullins, won Entertainer of the Year, apparently, Bacon in My Beans, and it's like the cheesiest, I, I can't remember the lyrics, but just like the most ridiculous and I don't it I hate it that seems like <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it it's just modern country like bacon in my bean where people are like let's think of like the most like lowest common denominator signifier mm-hmm. that'll just like get the rubes foaming at the mouth it's like let's talk about trucks let's talk about bacon let's talk that kind of thing <laughs> well and that's like when you I heard a live performance of it and it's like the crowd's like ha 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 like yeah he wants bacon in those beans or whatever like I don't know he's, it's no, just, he's not a fucking vegetarian <laughs> yeah like I think it is Ha-ha. something like that yeah. in the in the lyrics I, I don't want to go back and listen to it but probably should at this point yeah it's real cheesy that kind of thing who knows what makes it work 
sometimes and not work other times. I certainly like a lot of extremely cheesy country songs and bluegrass songs. Mm -hmm. But I think that, I mean, I'm Over You is, it is cheesy in that it fits in that that song category I was talking about of like, I'm obviously not over you. Right. But it's also, there's such a sweetness about it. Mm -hmm. Like the uh, layer of irony is so thin that it's almost not ironic at all. Because he's clearly meant for everyone to see right through it immediately. Do you want to listen to a little bit? Oh, I guess we ought to. Let's do it. You heard I'm drinking more than I should. We talked some before we started recording about how there's not much to dig into with the song as far as like the origin of it, because obviously Keith recorded it and passed away by the time it was released. And I looked at the songwriter some, and nothing was really evident about how the song came to be, other than like they got together for like a songwriting session to see what they could do. It was like two Nashville dudes who had done a lot of written a lot of songs and performed but like most of their songs got cut by other people mm-hmm. uh tim nichols probably his two most famous ones i think are vidalia and heads carolina tales california but he mm-hmm. wrote for a ton of people zach turner wrote watermelon crawl which i know is one of rachel's favorites yeah and i also, don't know that one <laughs> Ooh, we'll, we'll play it for you later yeah, yeah. um speaking, speaking of cheesy songs <laughs> um and then he wrote some for diffie and alan jackson and then also george jones the High Tech Redneck song that we've discussed in the past. Oh, yeah. He covered that one. So, yeah, they both wrote for some prominent people, but a lot of them were lesser known songs. Mm-hmm. But Libby was talking about a connection between Keith Whitley and George Jones. Yeah. Also. And it, that wasn't my original idea, It was, but it was something that was in the Ken Burns country music documentary, which Rachel and I recommend. Spencer said no comment. Uh, I haven't watched it. He hasn't watched it. He hasn't seen awful. it yet. For a country music fan, a I will say it's a little suspicious. There's a lot of content there. The Dolly Harshing series is now on That's Netflix. So I like, haven't seen that one. Okay, so oh, it just came out like Friday. Yeah, so. I haven't watched that one yet either. I've heard good things though. Okay then. Um, okay, Stop so shaming. we're we're all even. Um, <laughs> But there, there's just a brief part about Keith Whitley on there, basically talking about how he and Laurie Morgan were, people thought when they cut their first couple of duets, were like the heirs apparent to George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Mm-hmm. And probably it seemed like there was enough like drama there to to keep that part of it up too, yeah. and the drinking obviously. obviously. I mean, there's a few. There's there are some some definite connections there, and in a certain way, I mean, obviously George Jones had a longer career than Keith Whitley, but it was also extremely sad. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, you know, we're glad. To, I, I think probably most people are glad that we have the work that came out of that, but you know. I don't know if it would be, it's, I don't know if it's always a good thing for somebody who struggles with that kind of relationship to alcohol and that kind of relationship to fame to be a recording artist for decades. Yeah. You know, that's a heavy question. I don't have the answer to that, but. Well, and I guess it's because it's hard to know what path he would have ended up going down. Would he have stayed on like the George Jones path of like just 
continuously getting worse or getting better, but then getting worse again and going back and forth? Or would it be kind of like a revolutionary thing, which we've seen some in country and Americana scene where people hit rock bottom and realize, oh shit, I need to do something. And then there's a redemption. And then there's a redemption and they, I mean, the, the one that sticks out to me is Jason Isbell with that. Mm -hmm. Like he got clean and then wrote some of the most amazing work that he's done in his entire career. So it's hard to know which path he would have totally up down. Totally. Um, sad that, we didn't get to find out which way that would go. It is. And also that tragedy factor mm-hmm. in his music is part of how I think we hear his music right. now. Certainly I never was, I wasn't alive while he was alive. So always it's colored by that sense of like untapped potential, mm-hmm. all the years of songs that he would have recorded. Yeah. But then it really crystallizes him in this time. Mm-hmm. We won't see him as we did see, as you see a lot of country music stars go through their kind of like ridiculous old age yeah. of like, trying to maintain like right. appearances. Like yeah. he's not playing Spray the Dixie Classic Fair to 500 <laughs> right. people or right. something. Oh you know, man, like, that was a deep cut on our man Joe Diffie right there. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> it wasn't an insult. I'm just saying you view them in a different light. It is light. a different yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, I'll always picture him with his haircut that he had yeah. right in the late 80s. <laughs> and I Which mean. Likely he wouldn't have maintained, but you never know with country people. You never know. I think in May some stuff like even this song in particular like the line uh, you heard them drinking more than I should like it's like holy shit that really yeah. resonates with his life which I think when I first like started learning about Keith Whitley I thought he wrote more of his stuff which other than I had to look at the name of the um, wherever you are tonight thing that was like another posthumous thing of like demos he had done that were either co-writes or things he'd written himself very little of his work was stuff he had written himself. Mm -hmm. But like, it seems like, I think part of my assumption was, oh, this guy had gone through like so much shit in his life. He's definitely going to have written these songs about like, you know, this hard luck life Mm -hmm. growing up and, and all this stuff. So that was like my assumption was first started learning about him and like the tragic life he had and all that stuff. But, and maybe he just paired up with the right people. Or, you know, pick the right songs. Totally. You know, like, I, I don't know. Like, you could, you would say that about George Jones, too, probably. Like, a lot of the songs he didn't write that were very... That sort of expressed his right. mm-hmm. uh, life experience yeah, perfectly. Yeah. And I wonder if people were writing those with him in mind versus, like, yeah. him just sorting them out. Like, oh, yeah, this speaks to me. Yeah, he yeah. Or at least pitching, shit, so. pitching to him with right, him in right. mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of exactly. For him. I mean, in the bluegrass world... There are just as many people who uh, are, like, interpreters of songs as are writers of songs. That's, like, a very interesting tradition. I come from, like, in the Mipso world, we're very into songwriting. So I sometimes forget that that's a whole art unto itself. Mm -hmm. But I also play with Jake Fussell, another Mm -hmm. triangle musician, who doesn't write music, but I'm like so in awe of the way he finds and interprets music. And I've realized more and more through playing with him what a like specific musical skill that is. Right. And it's it's it can be entirely separate from writing. Like there I think there are people who write songs who like it feels like uh, doing dress up to do mm-hmm. to play other people's songs mm-hmm. and you can feel that in their performances. Right. That's kind of like hokey. Yeah. 
So being able to, and I guess this is like singing songs that were written for you is a little different from like unearthing old gems from like a folklorist field recordings, which is what Jake does a lot of the times. But there's a similar like set of skills involved, I think, which is like you take the song as it comes and you find the truth in it through like your singing style or your playing style or the arrangement. Well, and that reminds me a little bit of the Ken Burns documentary because based on what all he shared, like that was very much how country music got started was Mm -hmm. going into the mountains and taking out these old songs that were family songs handed down for generations to generations and then actually going and recording them and performing them in a way that it reminded everybody of home. And that's, I don't know why we're here today. I guess if you want to say, because we're talking about country music and that was where it all started. That feels especially true in eras of country music where, like, maybe I'm thinking, like, maybe the 60s, where, like, the seven most popular artists of the year would all record the same song. Yeah. <laughs> and it was somehow, like, nobody thought that was weird. Right. They were like, oh, yeah, I love that song. I, I'd love to hear this person's version right. of it. <laughs> like, I'm just imagining now if, like, us and Mandolin Orange and like His Golden Messenger and like five other triangle bands all just like recorded the exact same song because it did well and we thought well we might as well try our hand at it. (laughs) That's like a John Michael Montgomery and all for one type of situation where in two situations they ended up recording the exact same song (laughs) at the exact same same time time and charting at the same time pretty much. But well, you I guys think could that record that, the Bacon and My Bean song. Yeah. Oh, that's it, true. Yeah. That's a good idea. Because I feel like we would all feel some kind of connection to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'd, but we'd, at the same time, we'd each put our own spin on right. it. Yeah. I mean, I think By that's... taking the bacon out of it, you know. <laughs> right. Well, there's some vegetarians in Mipso, so yeah, we have trouble with that. Although we did play on the KFC float at the Macy's Parade, so we're clearly... We I don't have that strong of ideals. the irony of that. That's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I do think there's a lot of truth in that what you said about being able to pick a song and sometimes unearthing a song that no one's heard in decades. But other times it's just like picking a song and being able to put a spin on it or play in a way that hasn't been done before mm-hmm. versus writing a song about heartbreak in a way that hasn't been done before. I mean, they're both cha- mm-hmm. different challenges, but it's like there's millions of songs out there. How do you write a song about that that's saying something different than the millions of songs before. That's true. Versus like one of the Keith Whitley covers I'm thinking of, uh, I Never Go Around Mirrors, like that gets mm-hmm. covered all the time and it's mm-hmm. like, okay, what is he going to do, you know, interpreting that that's different right. than the hundreds of other covers that are out there and as someone who doesn't perform or write music, I imagine they're both really hard. But Yeah. I feel like you have to go like wildly different you mentioned Sturgill Simpson earlier when we mm-hmm. were talking about something else and like thinking about his cover of the promise, like, Oh yeah, that's a wonderful yeah. cover. And it's so different from the original that he was able to make it his own. What's, I think that's really a challenge. What's, what's interesting about country music, which I feel like is not true in say indie rock, for example, is that in country music, it's a part of your legitimacy to, connect yourself to people back in the tradition Mm -hmm. like in i'm just saying indie rock like we i mean that's i guess i could use a different genre but in indie rock essentially people are like wanting to be their own thing Mm -hmm. and be like 
whoa, I've never heard a song in this way before. And in country music, you maybe have that at a subtle level, but simultaneously, you're you're like not shit if you don't remind somebody of a country singer of the whatever, some decade prior. Yeah. And it's really cool when you have somebody like Dwight Yoakam coming on the scene who was like a California guy who wanted to be like tying himself directly to Buck Owens Mm -hmm. and then they literally like recorded a song together they did act naturally together and he's not really putting I mean he is putting his own spin on it in that it's decades later Mm -hmm. but more the point is to exactly reproduce this this like former stars uh, version of the song and then therefore to put himself in that tradition but I think if you're able to you have enough time there where you're going to capture yeah. the the old folks who remember Buck Owens. And so it's a throwback thing for them. But it's also been long enough that you have brand new fans that have never, ever heard that before. Definitely. And uh, like now, I think in modern country, you know, they, they name check those artists like Hank Williams and Waylon and Willie and stuff like that. Even though they don't sound anything like them, I think now they're substituting like the, the Alan name. Jackson wants you to think about older artists by the way he's playing songs. He wants you to think about Hank Williams. Now they're just like, I was just to a Hank song on the radio. And it's like, well, this doesn't sound anything like that. Like, I don't believe you. Yeah, but yeah. it would be awesome if like indie rock artists like now are like name checking the strokes and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like bands like, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. There's like, I'm going to drop in. They're like, I'm driving through the streets, listening to Arcade Fire. <laughs> <laughs> People are like, sick, they remember Arcade Fire? That's yeah. cool. These yeah. guys are legit. <laughs> that would be awesome. There needs to be a band like that. They just name checks all these like blog bands that were not, not Arcade Fire, more like under the radar ones yeah, that are like popular true. for like, yeah. you know, a, a year. Minute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would be funny. Well, cool. Do you want to tell us about what Mipso has going on next and what you have going on next? Sure. Yeah, Mipso is finishing an album right now. Like, we've done the recording part of it, and we're just mixing. And we're going to be putting that out, hopefully, in May of 2020. But before that, we're doing a... We're throwing it back to our country music predecessors and doing, like, an acoustic tour in January that'll probably be mostly a one mic thing and ditching our drummer for a little (laughs) while which is sad because he is so much fun but we're going to rediscover the mandolin chop so we're doing that in January and we'll be playing around in North Carolina some and then also like in the Northeast and the Midwest and I am also working on a Um, solo album right now that I'm just recording extremely incrementally Mm -hmm. in the breaks between Mipso things that I'm hoping to put out before the Mipso album comes out sometime. What's the race? Um, Yeah, so we'll see who wins. We'll see who reaches more listeners. (laughs) It's impossible to say at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you recording that with? I'm just recording it with like the music scene of the triangle, basically. I've been doing some with Alex Bangum okay. and um, Ryan Johnson, and then also Saman Kajinian. Mm-hmm. If you've heard T Gold, his yes. band. We had Saman. Okay, he's been I thought Saman brought yeah. that up, but I didn't want to suggest that. Yes. And then also the bulk of the recording I've done with my partner, Phil Moore, of the Bowerbirds. And we have, like, a little home studio that's made it possible for me to, like, get home from tour and have, like, Mm -hmm. 
a few hours one day to just jump yeah. back there and instead of uh, recording everything to iPhone voice memos mm-hmm. and hoping that one day I can afford a studio. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I'm working on. And actually, I don't have any shows yet to pump, but just look I was going to ask if I'll you some uh, eventually. We saw you at the Pinhook recently. Oh yeah. So I wasn't sure if you were playing any more solo things coming up. I'm playing something tonight, but the, um, you're not going to make it out, yeah, podcast <laughs> listeners. Sorry. And then I think I'm going to be playing some stuff in in like January, February, but nothing on the books yet. Cool. Pro- you know what? Probably some stuff at Pinhook. If nice. I had to guess, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I hope. Just hang out at Pinhook and wait till yeah, yeah. somebody will wait till it gets yeah. on stage. It'll be great. <laughs> well, very cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, look forward to listening to your solo stuff as well as the new Mipso jams. Excellent. Wonderful. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a good day. (laughs) Bye, Mom. You showed me when I was young just how to grow. You showed me everything that I should know. You showed me just how to walk without your hands. Cause mom, you always were